You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome, 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 welcome to this amazing, beautiful, incredible Tuesday, September 15th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and I'm super excited, more excited than I was last week because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is back. It's good to be back, Michelle. I don't know what the excuse I gave ever, uh, the audience who absolutely missed you, by the way. I had so <laughs> many emails, you know, people asking where John went. Um, but I think the excuse was like, uh, you know, you left us for someone way more important. Maybe maybe you had a meeting with like Donald Trump or something. Uh, not even remotely as exciting. Just visiting family in Wisconsin and Chicago. Ah, okay. So it wasn't it wasn't business. It was personal. Yep. Well, let's check in with politics. It, it uh, Maybe it, you know more than we do. If Donald Trump is finally, I guess, losing his, you know, spotlight in the media. Um, I don't think you could say that yet. Uh, ben Carson is catching up to him uh, closer and closer in some uh, polls. So if Ben Carson is your hero, um, you can be happy. Congratulations. Um, if neither of them is, then you can weep. Um, but yeah, no, Donald Trump continues to be strong in the polls. And uh, we're going to have, a, you know, the next GOP debate is tomorrow night on CNN. You're so tuning in. I will yeah, make it a drinking game, I guess. Well, you know what's interesting is that while Donald Trump still uh, remains in the media spotlight, mm -hmm. uh, another big spotlight in, in media headlines would be the actions of government officials who are being defiant at this point. We can only talk about one person or we will talk specifically about one person. So let's get our program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. So Kim Davis, the defiant county clerk from Rowan County, was jailed for five days for refusing to issue marriage licenses to any couple, but especially gay and lesbian couples, because of her religious beliefs. She has since been released and still vows to deny issuing the licenses. However, she won't stop her deputies from issuing them. But here to talk about Kim Davis and her shenanigans is Paul Henderson. Paul, welcome to the program. Oh, Michelle, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be I, I should do you more justice and uh, introduce you to our audience. Um, you are the Deputy Chief of Staff uh, and Public Safety Director here in San Francisco. Many, many people have already seen you uh, chime in on this very issue on networks like CNN and MSNBC. And you're also the former prosecutor for the District Attorney of San Francisco. Um, so, you know, as a media spokesperson who has legal background and, and, and all this mess, I, I mean, does Kim Davis, can, can you use religious beliefs to break the law? Well, well, you cannot, and this is part of the problem. It's really inappropriate, her behavior, and, you know, I get a, I've been covering this story for the past few weeks, much to the chagrin uh, of a segment of the population who's not happy to hear my legal analysis presentation, but you can't do that as a public official. You are essentially the holder of the right, but when you are in those positions and with that title, but that does not allow you to be the decider or to restrict the rights of others. And the real problem here uh, has come because in addition to her beliefs, 
that she is empowering, she has basically done that. She has restricted the rights of others, and that's the real problem. She is in violation of the law and the court, uh, and at the cost of individual rights, that's why the court determined that they needed to act and actually put her in custody, which is something that does not frequently happen for elected officials and something that the court is loath to do uh, in these situations. It, it, when, I, when you listen to what her lawyers are arguing and, and you know, they keep filing appeal after appeal, and then you listen to something that she said, which is you know she cannot, because of her personal beliefs, um, endorse these same-sex marriages, it seems to me she's got a fundamental misunderstanding of what her role is. I mean, she's not, you know, when she stamps that someone's uh, wedding certificate is approved or whatever, I mean, that's, it's not her personal thing. It's like, a, you know, the whole thing with a Catholic priest. It doesn't matter what they actually do or say or whatever. It's there in a, a, an office that grants them, you know, certain whatever powers or authority. Um, is, I mean, if her, the legal justifications that her, her attorneys are using and her arguments that she's making are that off base, I mean, can't judges just just throw certain things out of court, or do they all actually have to go to a trial and and, uh, hearings and all that? Well, it depends on what what she's trying to stop. In this situation, part of the challenge has been, you know, she's opposing her uh, beliefs and saying that that's what's preventing her from moving forward. And, And I think she has a very, very big misunderstanding of how her religious approach or how her belief system should work uh, at this cross-section where she is in a public position. And, you know, here's the thing with uh, the United States and in this country, you are allowed to practice your religion. You're not allowed to impose your religion. And when you are in a position of uh, authority like this or you are elected to a position, you are elected to make sure that the rights of others are taken care of. You, you can't, it's a false argument. And it's not like this is, you know, my interpretation of it. This is the court's interpretation of it as well. This is the law of the land and not the small courts either. The Supreme Court has spoken on this issue, and you are not allowed as an elected official to bring your personal beliefs to the stage and say that I'm going to hold on to or restrict or pick and choose which rights I would like to bestow upon other individuals or other communities. I, you know, I, 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 there's so many conflicts here, not to mention the issues of church and state, which I think is also a problem in terms of trying to separate out what someone is allowed to do. It's, the, the legal arguments that are being presented, separate from the foundation that I think she is standing on, which is her beliefs, which should not stand up to the scrutiny of the courts, I think the arguments that are being made by her lawyers are vacuous as well. Um, at, at this point, I really do feel like uh, she and her representatives are merely grandstanding for either political effect or to make her some sort of martyr for a cause that has been determined unjust by every analysis that there is, both in terms of the position and what she's supposed to be doing, 
and in front of uh, the court, which has clearly made the determination that her behavior is wrong, her decisions have been wrong, uh, and her actions uh, need to be, there needed to be an intervention. Uh, you, you know, like I said, I, I think custody is one of the last options that the courts want to consider. But in this situation where they are actually weighing and evaluating the rights of others that are being marginalized or diminished because of her action, they had to take immediate action. And, you know, as as an analyst, uh, one of the things that I'm optimistic of about is that they actually did not try to come up with some sort of an accommodation for her or her beliefs. I, I believe that would have been the wrong decision to make. And it also would have opened the door to other people to bring their own beliefs to their jobs and to say that they could do what they wanted to do based on their beliefs. And I, I, I quantify it as doing what they want to do because I don't think that there is one universal approach in any of these religions that allows a mandate of behavior that you can interpret or pick and choose what you like to do or what you'd like to follow. It's almost a cafeteria approach to the religion. Right. And with Kim Davis, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, we're, we are seeing the, this proliferation of, you know, the religious freedom uh, acts, the laws across various states um, about that, that are trying to build in certain religious accommodations. Would those that, that you've seen of them, and are those mainly, mainly focused on non-public officials, or might some of those stretch to include future Kim Davis type things? I, I think it's both. I think they can be personal and they can be uh, elected officials, but the it's how they are expressed and what the topics are that they choose to express. So, for instance, if you say uh, that you decide that you want to be Amish and you no longer want to drive a car or own a vehicle and you're going to get to work however you want to do it, uh, that's absolutely fine. But what you cannot say is, because of my position and now that I'm Amish, I refuse to issue driver's license to anyone. Mm. That's, that's not how this works. You've taken it too far. You are not entitled as an elected official to restrict the rights of others. And, and so I think the court has been very clear about that being the balancing that they're concerned about. What are the rights of others? And is your behavior interfering with them? That That's that's the key. Right. And I, and I feel like that's what she's misunderstanding. And at this point, I feel like her misunderstanding is purposeful because the courts have been absolutely clear in what the law is and what she must do and what her office must continue to do. The office was designed to bestow a right. She cannot take control of that office and then restrict those rights. That's the problem. Right. Now, so the latest is she's apparently back at work. Um, she's trying to say something along the lines of, uh, she, you know, she won't stop her clerks from issuing these licenses, but they will not have her name on them or uh, they will not, I don't know if she's saying they're not, they won't be valid, but she's saying they won't have the authority or whatever of authenticity, authenticity. Um, more BS, or does that create a more legal problems down the line, or is she just, uh, uh, you know, making it sound good for herself? I mean, what is that? What does that mean legally? That what she's saying. So I, I think this is her own cognitive dissonance here. Uh, 
certainly she will not interfere. And that was based on the court's questioning and asking her uh, if they released her, would she interfere? And one of the things I think if we peel back the court's decision when they made uh, the decision to put her into custody for those six days, uh, they could have kept her there indefinitely until she expressed a willingness to comply with the law. And again, I told, as we talked about before, the balance is interfering with the rights of others. And so conditional upon her release was her indicating that she would not interfere with those rights being bestowed by that office. Uh, and then secondarily, she follows it up with questioning the authority of the license that are being issued. Uh, and, and again, you, Kim Davis, are not the authority on those licenses being distributed. The, the quantification and the qualification and the validation of those licenses has been determined by the state, has been determined by the country, has been determined by the Supreme Court. And so your lack of support of those licenses does not invalidate the authority of those marriages. It's, it's a vacuous argument, but it allows her to maintain her stage and to make these challenges. But those are all challenges that have been fought and lost already. She's trying to revive these same arguments and combine them with her own personal beliefs, but that does not provide a basis of validation for the argument to challenge the authority of marriages and the licenses that are issued from her office. Right, right. Paul, we've got to take a quick break right here, but please stick around. I have some questions regarding, uh, well, the, the deputies that are issuing the licenses without her signature and also a possible removal process if, if there is one. So you'll stay with oh, us? Oh, I've got that for you. All right, Thanks. awesome. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao Show. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. And of course, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. On the phone is the Deputy Chief of Staff and Public Safety Director, Paul Henderson, who's also a well-known media spokesperson, has been on several networks uh, and here to talk to us about the Kim Davis situation. Kim Davis being the county clerk, the uh well, she probably calls herself a rebel, but we call her <laughs> a criminal at this point. She broke the law. Um, Paul, you know, I mentioned a uh, I, I mentioned that the deputies uh, she's she's back at work now after, you know, spending five days or so in custody um, and she's out. But she's allowing for her deputies to issue the licenses without her signature. Could she stay in her role in this way? Well, it, it, it depends. There are a number of things that can happen. But first, I, I just want to mention the authority from the deputies uh, because her name has been crossed out and those licenses 
are being issued under the authority of the court, and that's what it says on those documents. So there will be no judgment against the deputies that are under her, except by Kim Davis and whatever her own personal beliefs are. I just find it completely ironic that uh, you know she's in this position, given her own position of trying to interpret what she believes to be traditional marriage, this coming from an individual who has been married and divorced three or four times and now has decided that she should be uh, the person or the individual that should define what traditional marriage should be based on her own religious beliefs. So that's, that's where we are and, and what is going on right now. In terms of looking forward into the future, of what could happen to her or what could happen in this county, there's still a number of complicated legal issues surrounding her. This issue has not gone away based both on her past behavior and what could happen uh, moving forward based on what she decides to do. So there are several ways that she may not be there for a long period of time, and, and I'll walk you through what those options look like. Uh, one, she could still be held uh, back in contempt and put back into custody if she does decide that she wants to interfere either with the issuing uh, of the license or uh, gets in the way of those licenses being issued. And I think that's why she's kind of trying to stay in her office with the blinds closed and put her head in the sand. Uh, but there are a number of charges that have been filed that are being evaluated right now contemporaneously with her release and with her behavior, uh, the most significant of which are the misdemeanor criminal charges, which have been forwarded to the attorney general's office uh, in her state. And so those are misdemeanor charges, uh, but they carry up to a year in custody uh, for her not discharging uh, her duties as obligated by taking the oath uh, and taking uh, that position. Now, we don't know if the Attorney General is going to actually file those charges, but they have been requested and they are reviewing those charges uh, right now, and so she could face further criminal charges. The, uh, the ancillary lane are the civil charges that have been filed against her by the couples that were refused their right to have their licenses granted to them. Now, those are really interesting because those are civil suits, uh, but the issue is whether or not she will be shielded from civil liability for her position. Normally, when you are in a role as a public servant, you have a shield uh, for doing your job. But in this case, because not only is she refusing to do her job, but she is not following the law, as has been made to, clear to her by the court, she may no, not have a shield against civil liability from those lawsuits. So she could be personally sued uh, and have to pay some hefty fines or some hefty fees by a separate court based on her past behavior. Uh, and then the third track, and I think this goes back to your original question of, is she going to be allowed to stay in her position? 
And, you know, that's a little more complicated, but not completely. So in her position as an elected official, and right, this is why she could not just be fired flat out, because technically her boss uh, are the voters and the people that voted her into office. And so she can be impeached or recalled. But what it would take uh, in order to move forward is at least 25% of the electorate that uh, elected her or the population or community that elected her to file the petition for a recall to have her recalled. And, and that could happen. Uh, I don't know if there's uh, a movement going on right now to have that recall take place. But in terms of having her removed, uh, which is a separate process from the recall, you know, you, you need a consensus with both sides uh, in the House and in the Senate uh, in her state uh, to take action. And that's a very difficult road uh, to do because of the split politically uh, to garner support completely yeah. across the board uh, to have something like that take place. But that does not prevent uh, the issue of a recall taking place. So when, that's what's on the table, and that's what's still facing her in spite of the fact that the ball of justice has continued to roll and the rights are being uh, passed out amongst uh, all communities now. Sure. You, when you were talking, a long about, way of answering the question, but it gets kind of complicated. <laughs> when you're talking about charges or, or uh, things she could be uh, facing future uh, problems with, um, she also did. Did she not? She also stopped her clerks or deputies from issuing these licenses. Could someone go after her or the deputies? Well, let's say specifically her for coercing the deputies not to uh, fulfill their public duties. Um, they they could. Um, and and again, as as I explained earlier, she she's not going to be. She's not going to have a shield of personal liability for her behavior there. But retroactively, uh, if someone, let's say, filed a civil suit, they would likely sue her personally and sue all of the government agencies that allowed her uh, to behave in a way that restricted the rights of others. Uh, in this situation, as I said before, she would likely be found personally liable for not following the law, and that would be the problem. But it would not, the personal liability would not typically run to her deputies, per se, okay. for following her orders, because she was the one making that decision, and she was technically their boss, and their job was to follow their boss's rule, regardless of what their beliefs may have been. Okay. So uh, we've... From the outside, it looks like she's exhausted all of her legal options, and yet her lawyers continue to, you know, talk appeals and stuff like that. Is she out of, you know, is she at the at her end game yet, or is there a legal end game as far as what her lawyers can appeal and and uh, uh, you know try to push or keep filing suits? Uh, now, at what point will she have exhausted everything she can do? And she needs to then start, I guess, dealing with the suits oh, against her. We have come to that bridge and crossed it uh, <laughs> weeks ago. She has, uh, she is out of appeal. She has finished all of uh, her legal arguments. And that's why I said now she's trying to revive them. And her legal team is now 
trying to revive the exact same arguments and saying, well, she'll stand aside, allow the licenses to be issued, but they may not be authentic. That, that's a false argument. There is no basis there. The courts have already ruled on these same issues. She's just saying them again. It's a disingenuous approach, and her beliefs do not revive the legal arguments that have already been decided by the Superior Court and the Supreme Court. So and, that's where we are. Yeah, and of course, judges love to have lawyers tell them that the judge's authority <laughs> is not real. So that, that yeah, good yeah, luck with exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly why she spent the, that time in jail uh, yeah. and that time in custody. Paul, uh, we're, you, so we're winding down on time. And so, you know, I know that you've been hitting the media circuits, which your voice is just so important. And, you know, not only do you have the legal background, but also you can speak, you know, about this situation intelligently. My fear is that, you know, I mean, you know, Kim Davis is not the first to use religious freedom, religious beliefs as a uh, a way to, to not do our job. Um, and, and, it, and, you know, John mentioned it earlier that this could... Um, we're seeing other states propose religious freedom bills and it actually getting passed. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I think like the lasting words I'd, I'd love to hear from you as, as a, someone with legal background is to explain to the rest of America here that this is not an argument about, you know, religious beliefs versus you know, equal rights or treatments for LGBTQI people. And in fact... I'd like to, you know, for you to also just uh, plainly, plainly um, you know, put it that, uh, that that equal rights extended to LGBTQ people, I mean, that is law now here in, in this country in certain states. It, it is the law, and that's, I'm so glad you brought that point up, because this is exactly why I thought it was so important that the court ruled that the way that they did, and they actually did put her in custody, because I do think that that sends a message to the rest of the nation, that you are not allowed to stand in the way of this fight for equality. You are not allowed to bring your personal beliefs to the table to interfere with how the courts have now broadened the definition of justice and broadened the rights of all communities. And that's exactly why there was no accommodation, right? That they didn't say, well, we will restrict how licenses are issued in this county. Uh, instead, they chose a more dramatic uh, approach and ruled that she must go into custody, in part to send that message to the rest of the country. But you cannot stand in the way of this progress. You cannot stand in the way of equality, and you cannot stand in the way of justice. The courts have been clear, and because we want communities that have been marginalized and disenfranchised, to use the courts to define what justice should look like and what their rights should look like. But if we can't rely on those decisions, then we cannot rely uh, on the court as a means of redress. So, you know, as frustrating as the story has been, it has provided us with uh, a broad opportunity to address how rights are fought for in this country and has provided us with a great opportunity to make sure that those rights are bestowed upon every community here in this country. Wonderfully said. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us here this morning and for walking us through this situation. No, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.
Uh, to follow yeah, exactly. Paul's. To follow Paul's work, visit pauldhenderson.wordpress.com. He's also available on Twitter at paulhendersonsf. We'll and be I'm right today at MSNBC. So yeah, that's all, that's right. He's on MSNBC, so I'll retweet that for all of you who are tuning in. Don't go away. Coming up next, we've got San Francisco's sheriff Ross Mercurimi in a new jail integration program for transgender women. So that is exciting. Don't go away. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, September 15th. We're halfway through this ninth month of the year, and I freaked out last night because there's only a few more months before this year ends, which would mean then I turn 34 next year. But uh, again, that's just my, that's just me freaking out. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. Glad to be here, Michelle. <laughs> uh, I'd like to extend, you know, many heartfelt thanks to Paul Henderson who joined us and walked us through you know, the Kim Davis situation. It's very easy for us, especially those here on, in this program and on the show, to not intellectually be able to say, Kim Davis, you're breaking the law. Uh, but I think he did a, a wonderful job, a great job explaining that, uh, you know, d- d- what it comes down to here is we're not infringing on your right to, you know, re- your religious belief here, but you're just plain breaking the law. That's right. Pretty clear. Yeah. Well, speaking of of the law and somebody we definitely don't want to break the law in front of is <laughs> our next guest, who is the current sheriff of San Francisco. And prior to being sheriff, he has served on the Board of Supervisors for San Francisco. And some of you may know him, especially if you're outside of San Francisco, as the supervisor who successfully led uh, legislation that, uh, you know, led to the ban of non-biodegradable plastic bags in supermarkets. Uh, very, very, very progressive here in San Francisco. But today he's here to talk about a jail integration plan for trans women. So let's welcome Ross Mercurimi to the show. Ross, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I just mentioned, you know, a jail integration plan um, that actually has been announced uh, through, you know, various media outlets, uh, by the way. But transgender women in San Francisco's city county jails will now be able to access programs for other female in uh, for other female inmates and eventually will be housed with with female inmates if they wish to. Uh, which is a plan that you had just unveiled. Let's talk about it. Uh, True. And along with your intro, I know I'm noted for when I was a city supervisor representing District 5 and banning plastic bags are first in the United States. A lot of my signature time was built on public safety and criminal justice reform as a member on the Board of Supervisors. And I carry those ideals forward with me in my capacity as the elected sheriff of the city and county of San Francisco. And really philosophically, I I strongly believe that if we wanna improve public safety, then we really have to do our best for our in-custody population so that they're able to rehabilitate and reenter back into society as effectively and meaningfully as possible. And I've always felt that our transgendered population in San Francisco jail, while I think we do it better than most in San Francisco, overall in the United States, um, the trans population is a very marginalized population on the streets of America. And I know that as sheriff, and I knew this even before coming in, Think of how that marginalization is magnified inside prisons and jails. That's why I'm committing uh, these reforms, which I understand are some of the first in the United States. And I'm honored to see the press, like Time Magazine in New York, uh, the New York Times, and 
The Guardian from England and et cetera, that's covering this story. I'd like to believe that this is the wave of the future, and I think it is. Now, so set the stage. The situation as it is now is that are all trans uh, inmates separate from the rest of the population? They're segregated, correct. And and how did that come about? Was that requested by the inmates? Was that uh, something, were there abuses that were being addressed? I mean, why did that situation All come the about? above, but the, um, the overriding motive is safety. Safety for the inmates, safety for fellow inmates, safety for the staff. And I think it was just the reflex of the times that had uh, pursued for really decades Mm -hmm. that in prisons and jails in this country that transgender population, trans women or trans men, would be segregated from the general population. Um, And there just wasn't, I think, the deep thinking uh, that is now, I think, emerging about what you do with this population instead of just disrespecting them while they're incarcerated. So the the goal then behind the new your your new plan is to integrate everybody out of that excuse me everybody out of that or uh, there oh, well there's there a determination that certain determination would be better candidates for well, that one I don't want to force anybody mm-hmm. to be somewhere that they don't want to be so the option of staying in a segregated unit will always remain ninety okay. percent of the inmates that San Francisco has seen over the last twenty years and we've looked at this. Um, thoroughly, Mm -hmm. is trans women uh, that come in, not at all frequent to see, um, or commonplace to see a trans man come in. But we develop protocols for trans women and developing protocols for trans men. Um, Should they uh, elect to want to integrate into our women's jail, then they should benefit in the same way that our women's population does through the whole panoply of Reentry and rehabilitation programming, and ultimately it's housing. And I plan to make all that happen before 2016. Wow, Ross, that's that's huge. I mean, uh, you know, the conversation has been ongoing uh, throughout the country, really, when it comes to incarcerated trans uh, inmates, uh, and and everything from like access to healthcare and also treatment of trans inmates uh, in this country has been talked about. Um, I'm wondering how the program and the integration also affects, you know, employees who who are, you know, working in the jail system and if there's an education plan in place. I think we have some enlightened people in our uh, jail system, um, both from the deputy sheriffs and the civilian staff, but I, I won't um, sugarcoat this. I'm actually being sued. You know, there's litigation to try to slow me up or stop me from doing this. And I think there is uh, through a grievance process. Um, and there are transphobic people that work in law enforcement as there are anywhere, I think, in society as there are homophobic people too. And I think that in an enclosed, incarcerated environment, you really see that come to life because it's just so um, palpable. And I've seen that, and that's why I'm not shying away from it. But I think we have to push further in order to break through. And frankly, I think it's a civil right. So what? What? How big is the population of trans? Not, folks in not the big in in terms of the press that we've been getting. Sure. It, it doesn't live up to. But the average daily population is about seven or eight mm-hmm. uh, of people who identify themselves trans women or trans men, mostly trans women. That is. Um, Really, on the high side, we've seen maybe a dozen uh, that are incarcerated. Um, rare if it gets beyond that. Our population today is six. Mm-hmm. So, uh, were this, this, and is this an issue of you can make this happen, or does this have to be approved by any 
courts or any no, higher? No, I'm the sheriff, and I have the capacity mm-hmm. to make it happen. I have to go through, uh, answer the grievance process. Part of my response to that, and the other answer to your question, is education. We will train the inmates as well as our staff in concurrent uh, training uh, in order to understand, one, the reason, um, the benefit, and the pitfalls. Because, again, our overarching goal of maintaining, sustaining safety for everybody can never be compromised. And I don't want to misstep so that this, um, you know, really blows, implodes on us. So sure. we have to be methodical about it. What we're unveiling in the next several weeks is there will be an integration of into women's programming. So the trans women will then be uh, from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. into the women's jail where they will be ferried every day and every evening to the women's jail where they will integrate in the women's programming. And that's the warm-up to then where we segue in several months into the housing integration. And we're enlisting, frankly, this couldn't happen if it wasn't for the National Center for Lesbian Rights, the Transgender Law Center, um, the Human Rights Commission in San Francisco. So we've been really working very closely joined at the hip with a number of partners from community experts right, in what we think is the right approach to this reform. And this has really been happening since I've taken over as sheriff. You mentioned uh, when you were first talking about this that it might be the first in the nation. Is it the first? Or are there other countries that have have, have There's other countries. Um, As one always seems to recall Scandinavia, they seem to always be the most progressive at everything. Um, But there are are within Scandinavian countries, Mm -hmm. Germany, and some of their metropolitan areas as well, too. Um, In the United States, there's been a lot of chatter about this. As a matter of fact, I was over two years ago in Cook County in Chicago talking to the sheriff there, who are contemplating or were contemplating, but they haven't taken the next steps mm-hmm. um, of what we're doing now. And I know the District of Columbia, I know Portland, Maine has been looking at this. Portland, Oregon has been making some gestures. And in Colorado, they've been looking at it. But as I understand it, in terms of total integration, um, as the press has um, replied to me, they they say we're the first. Well, and, and then I assume that all those other cities, counties, and such that are considering this are really going to be watching closely what you do here and how it works out. Well, we're not, you know, it's true, they are. And reference to Michelle's comment earlier about health care, mm-hmm. we're also the first county jail system in the country to bring in Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And when that was passed by Congress <clears throat> and protected after the Supreme Court's ruling, I, I wanted us to get to this um, sort of with the punchline of what do you do for a, a prisoner jail population when so many people within prison or jail um, suffer from a substance abuse or substance misuse in their life or mental illness, but yet do not have the means for health insurance or access to health insurance when they get out. And everybody who gets out of uh, prison or jail, 80% of that population, this has been known for years, of that lives below the the poverty line. So they just don't have access. Mm -hmm. So before people are discharged, it's our goal to make sure that they have health insurance. Now we can't, you know, we can't force them to use it, but we're hoping that we motivate them to do so. But at least they'll have access to it. Well, it's just on the the mental health factor. I mean, that the 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 numbers of folks that I've read that that are who are in prison or jails who have mental health issues of one sort or another, it's, it's a huge proportion of the population 
It's a crisis. Right. I, I mean, and, I'll be honest with you. It's a crisis. It, San Francisco has uh, a number of milestones that we can trumpet. For example, we're one of the most undercrowded county jail systems in the United States. Right. Our capacity is 2,450. Our population today is under 1,300. But the mentally ill population is growing. Michelle Miao and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club, our guests in studio, by the way. I didn't mention that. I always get really excited when we have in-studio in studio guests. Is San Francisco Sheriff Ross Mercurimi, and we're talking about his trans-jail integration program for trans women, uh, which I think, you know, have uh, done well. I mean, it, it's got to be probably the most progressive integration program for trans women. And, it's you know, we're announcing it in, in an election year for you. And uh, my guess is that there are some people who are probably going to have some feedback feelings about this great program that I can't see uh, what what the opposing argument would be if somebody didn't support this program. So have you heard anything other than great things? Oh, not only what I've heard, I've seen written like in the San Francisco's Barrier Report or the president of the deputy sheriff's union, I thought was very overtly transphobic about their resistance to this. I mean, law enforcement culture can be a very inflexible mm-hmm culture, a real inflexible culture. Not that they're not well-meaning, but it really takes, um, you know, it really takes, I think, some leadership to advance. And while you do everything you can to bring everybody to the table to try to, you know, their fallback positions are often the kind of positions that has caused this criminal justice system to fail so miserably over the last 50 years. If we continue to listen to folks that resist these kind of endeavors, then we would be building many more prisons, many more jails. We'd be incarcerating people for substance abuse when we shouldn't be in the first place because of the failed war on drugs in this country. We'd be criminalizing poverty more than we do, criminalizing mental illness more than we do. And it would continue to take us in the wrong direction. And yes, you're right. Those are the very kind of themes that are coming out and will come out in my re-election and our election. We can't go backwards. Absolutely. John, do you have anything before we go on our break? Uh, not for that, not, no. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Sheriff Ross Mercurimi. And uh, yeah, we're going to get into Anything that last part that you mentioned <laughs> that he's uh, up for re-election. So don't go away. Ross Mercurimi and the rest of us will be right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And in studio is Sheriff Ross Mercurimi. He's the sheriff of San Francisco for those who are not in this uh, Bay Area. And right before the break, we were talking about his trans jail integration program for trans women, which would be, yes, the most progressive program, um, you know, if... Uh, if and, I just am floored by the uh, opportunity just because um, it hasn't it. We've always been talking about inmates in the most negative way. And I'm, uh, I'm going to move from that conversation and I'm, I'm going to have John Zipper here jump in and, and uh, 
offer a question for Ross. Sure. Well, certainly a lot of our listeners who know anything about San Francisco or have heard about Sheriff Mercurimi, they've been hearing a lot lately about the whole sanctuary city policy and, and the, the tragic murder that took place here that has been linked to that policy by some. Um, and you've been kind of become a punching bag of some of the national politicians who oppose sanctuary cities. Um, also of some local politicians who have used you, I think, as the focus of, you know, what they say is wrong with the sanctuary city policy. So first, is, is, should the sanctuary city policy be changed? Is there anything in motion that 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 uh, would affect, you know, your carrying out of anything related to it? What's what's the current status of all that? Well, there's been a lot of misinformation resulting from the Pier 14 tragedy, mm-hmm. um, resulting in the killing of Miss Steinway. But what that tragic killing has done is spotlight the schizophrenia between local immigration law, state, and federal laws. Um, and I thought that a lot of people, uh, ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement, and then Mayor Lee and Donald Trump were all too quick to point fingers without looking really at the inconsistencies between local, state, and federal law and nobody offering anything to do anything about it. And all along, um, me and my office has been communicating one way to Mayor Ed Lee, explaining to them our concerns about uh, immigration law and the feasibility of of implementing it. Um, a lot of people put the light on Sanctuary City. That's actually not the issue. Okay. Sanctuary cities were invented in the late 1980s and early 1990s in San Francisco and many cities around the country. Um, really as a statement and as a governmental procedure to make immigrant uh, and undocumented populations feel welcome and really try to set up some protocols for undocumented people to live within our city's law abiding. And, and it was tied, didn't it outgrow, excuse me, didn't it grow out of a lot of the uh, the, the civil wars in Central America? That's correct. Specifically trying to provide. That's absolutely correct. It did um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, it was after um, ICE uh, really became the principal um, administrator of immigration issues after 9-11, is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. And then through their program known as Secure Communities, or also known as ESCOM, was seen to be very reckless um, for about 10 years, um, deporting, um, incarcerating the wrong people. And that sort of bubbled up to the point where many city governments, including San Francisco, passed laws that prescribed how law enforcement should interact with ICE. So it was in 2013 that a law was passed by the Board of Supervisors, our city council, and enacted by the mayor, signed by the mayor, called Due Process for All. Mm-hmm. And Due Process for All was really the, the prescribing guideline of saying law enforcement, this is how you limit your contact with eyes. Um, it wasn't the most comprehensive law, but then several federal court decisions had um, been rendered between 2013 and 2014 and said ICE detainers are unlawful, that they're unconstitutional. And I take that to heart. And so when I met with President Obama's cabinet secretary, Jay Johnson, who's over ICE, he's Jay Johnson Homeland Security. He's in San Francisco today. Yesterday, today, that's right. Um, we um, told him that because of the laws that have been passed locally and what happened in federal law, we need a court order, a warrant, no problem. You can take, you know, if you need somebody, want somebody, but show us a court order or warrant. We adhere to all laws. But a detainer, meaning, hey, can you detain somebody for us? 
uh, or notifying somebody has been deemed unconstitutional. And this has become a real problem. And so the mayor or the board is, I mean, the Chronicle, they want us just to sort of repeal that. But I've been asking everybody, I've said the mayor, let's go in front of the board and have a transparent, honest discussion about how do we reconcile the unconstitutionality of complying with a non-judge-ordered um, request from the federal government, um, you know, and carrying out the spirit of the laws that we're passing here. The FBI doesn't get to do what ICE does. The CIA, if they were operating domestically, doesn't get to do what ICE does. The National Security Agency that Edward Snowden was exposing doesn't get to do what ICE does. They all are required to have a court order and a warrant uh, and when they are uh, administering their level of detention. So ICE seems to be above that, and that's where I've held my ground. Uh, and just going back to the fact that we pointed out this is a uh, an election year, um, so you're looking to be reelected. I mean, in this all the, the press has really blown the whole sanctuary city thing out of proportion. And and um, John Zipper had just mentioned that it 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 did negatively impacted you in in this way. And so uh, my question is, you know, I mean, what are your feelings about the media blowing it up in, into this and that it it having that adverse effect on you? Well, I'm no stranger to seeing that happen. Um, even coming to the office as sheriff, me and my family were very high profile in the turbulence that um, really er revolved around and emanated from me, essentially. And um, the disproportionate sort of um, and, and pretty mean-spirited coverage, especially out of the Chronicle, um, was a real life lesson. It was really telling. Um, but it was important for me and my family then and is in any of the initiatives that we've undertaken to just do our best to explain our position, try to enlist the wisdom of everybody around us and, and keep pushing forward. It's a, it's a place out of sincerity. It's not one out of arrogance. And it's one that looks for any kind of you know middle ground but not in the case of law enforcement as a result of Pier 14, where I want to associate myself with other politicians that profess to be supporters of Sanctuary City and then hypocritically telling me to practice something else. And that's what's going on in San Francisco. Um, I think it's actually pretty cowardly of Mayor Lee and others to say, we support you know, Sanctuary City, we support undocumented, but they're telling the sheriff to cherry pick when we decide to call ICE and when not to. So my response in a three-page letter to the mayor right after um, the Steinle killing was telling him, again, let's you and I go before the Board of Supervisors, our legislative body, and have an open and transparent discussion and in, so that we can decide if we want to change local law. And if the board does that, no problem. I will adhere to all those. But as it stands now, I think the system is broken, and I'm making the best judgment call based on it. And you said earlier that you're having this one-sided conversation, if you will, with the mayor. Has he literally not responded? I've never met him in three years. He has not. He has not met with me. I've written him 
probably at least a 10 or 12 letters, maybe even a Hallmark card or two. I don't know. <laughs> I, but, can, but, I can confirm that, actually. he Mayor Adley did say that. Um, he was a guest on Michael Krasny's show, Forum, on KQED. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Michael Krasny, being Michael Krasny, couldn't believe it. You mean you don't talk to the, the sheriff? And, uh, you know, I think he offered a uh, one of those uh, justifications of, well, we don't really need to talk. I, I disagree. I mean, I was a a two-term member of the Board of Supervisors, and I had my differences, you know, with Mayor Newsom uh, at the time, but we were able to always, and anybody, we don't always have consensus, and frankly, I think that that's the art of democracy, but you figure a way on how to keep moving it forward. I think there's a pettiness and a mean-spiritedness that's overcome City Hall because of the style of Room 200 that I've never seen before in my over 32 years of being in San Francisco. Okay, so you and the mayor are both up for re-election this, this well, November. Well, he's uncontested. Well, that's Except kind of, that's kind of what opponents. I'm getting to, is, yeah. is yeah. pretty sure that he's going to be re-elected. Yeah. If you're in and out Vicki Hennessy, your opponent, were here, I would right. ask her, what does she hope to do if she gets elected? If you are re-elected, what would you want to do with the next four years? Well, I'm honored to have the support of my predecessor, Sheriff Mike Hennessy, and he's kind of the in my opinion, the, the gold standard in, in this equation. He was elected eight consecutive times, sheriff 32 years, and known as one of the most progressive sheriffs in the country. When he knew he was going to retire, he tapped me to succeed him, and he still is with me in my reelection. And I vowed to build on everything that he started, and we've taken it into such new heights. Um, and that is really trying to improve people's lives so that they don't return back to jail, which ultimately the net effect is improving public safety. And we've done that through our education system in the jails. Harvard has recognized us, the Kennedy School of Government, uh, in an Innovation Government Award, the only law enforcement in the agency. Uh, Governor Brown's prison secretary was out here, and he asked to inspect all 58 jails and um, showing you all, but not the audience, it says, here's a newspaper cover inside of a model jail. And there's Governor Brown's Secretary of Prisons, uh, Jeffrey Baird, and me in the backdrop, because of during state prisoner realignment, where the prisoners have returned from uh, the state prison's failed system to the 58 counties, we've defied all odds in showing how to manage that population to the point of successful reentry. But moving forward, let me tell you, we've got a changing city in San Francisco, and our criminal justice system needs to be agile enough to change with it. So I don't think that we should be criminalizing mental illness. As I was referencing earlier, you can see it in the streets of San Francisco. This city has no plan, none whatsoever, to deal with the escalating population of people suffering with mental illness and or substance abuse. And when they're building new hospitals these days, and five new hospitals being built and not a single one, the first time ever in the history of land use planning, at least in this scale, not required to have a psych bed that's part of the hospitals. And then you have shrinking amount of psych beds at the county hospital, San Francisco General. Where do you think they all go? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're now the default largest health, mental health institution right. in the city. Yeah. So I'm using the pulpit to speak out where I don't believe my opponents can do so because they're just proxies of Mayor Ed Lee since they have his support. And that would mean clashing potentially or calling attention to where the defects are with all this prosperity going on. Sheriffs do evictions. Well, we're the only sheriff's department in the state of California that has a creature called the Eviction Assistance Unit. Just two weeks ago, I told our deputies to stand down from evicting an 87-year-old lady because she didn't have anywhere else to mm. bounce to. 
Adult Protective Services wasn't going to pick her up. Salvation Army of Goodwill was overwhelmed. The one senior shelter that the city has was not in a position to take her. So I said, stand down until we figure out what to do. There is no sheriff's department in the state that I know of, or maybe in the country, that's phone banking, that's looking for housing for people. But when a court order for an eviction comes down, we're the agency of last resort. And I'm also trying to save taxpayers money because I just got our department credentialed in a very similar way that the SFPD is so that SFPD doesn't just have to walk beats. We can add to that. And we can save people money because our deputies get paid less. So those are part of the innovations that I think is important to have an independent progressive sheriff um, and build on what my predecessor has. I, I get the last question. I'm sorry, John. Uh, we're winding down on time and I have sure. to ask it. I mean, again, you know, in, in, in having you here and talking about your politics and uh, your reelection campaign, it's it's obvious that how you feel and what what uh, what you're thinking aligns with me as a progressive and kind of what way I would vote. Uh, but again, I, this is a talk show program, so I'm not saying that there's no endorsement yeah, yeah. here. Yeah. Um, however, with, with some progressives, uh, you know, I've heard down the pipeline there, they, they seem to not be able to separate your personal life with your political career uh, and uh, have kind of put that in the same box, you know, the issue with your family, the domestic violence charges and and whatnot. I I think that, you know, if you could speak to some of those progressives who are unable to separate, you know, kind of your position regarding safety, regarding women or whatever it is, how you want to answer that, you don't have to go into great detail, um, uh, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, in speaking to those people who are concerned, what would you say? Well, I, I would have loved if they'd seen my wife's play. This is a one-woman show that just ended called What is the Scandal? Because um, while I certainly did a lot of talking and a lot of listening during all that turbulence, one person that they never asked was my wife, what she thought. And she is an accomplished actress, uh, was very successful in her native Venezuela, and put on this play uh, one woman stage production called What is the Scandal? Because neither the press, frankly, or nor the community, who was doing a lot of talking on her behalf, but never ever asked her, I think it would have enlightened them if they come and listen to her. And I don't mind answering any questions about any of the lessons learned, you know, that me or my family went through. Um, and it has made us a stronger family and me a better man and, and, and frankly, a more effective sheriff. But bottom line is I'm the guy who presides over the industry of second chances. I didn't know that I might become a poster child for that. Mm. I didn't expect that to be, but I haven't shied away whatsoever from any of the mission objective of bettering people's lives, no matter what handicap politically they may see of me or personally. Um, I've still stood my ground moving forward and trying to advance the cause of both women, men, and transgender and others, you know, so that they benefit from a progressive sheriff, no matter how uh, the deficits that people may see or deficiency somebody or flaws may somebody see in me. I make a mistake, then what you do when you make a mistake is you really try to acknowledge it, improve upon that, and never make a mistake again and move forward. And frankly, it's kind of what our system is about, right? And hoping that people move forward with their lives, not to ever repeat again. Ross Mercurimi, everyone. Ross, thank you so much for joining us here on the program today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it. We have no uh, final thoughts, but maybe John and I will have a, a chance at doing that later on this week or, or next week. Don't forget, John hosts uh, Week to Week, that which happens this Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. 
Tomorrow we'll be back at 4 o'clock Pacific uh, Standard Time, and you can always reach us at michellemeow.com. Thank you.